I'm not Pastor Michael. We're not continuing our sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Um, Throughout the last couple months, I've been spending a lot of time studying the book of Ecclesiastes, which for many of us is a book that if you've read it, your first thought is probably, this is a pretty depressing book. Um, So uh, I'll kind of go over an introduction for the book in a moment. But if you want to start turning there in your Bible, I believe we have it on the live stream as well as on the projector. I'll read it in a couple moments while you're turning there. Something that perhaps some of you might know about me is I used to actually, for two different times in my life, I worked for Apple. Once during college, and then once, um, tent making is the term used, where a pastor works bivocationally, um, getting part of their pay from the church and part of their pay from somewhere else. And so working for Apple, as you might imagine, there is often people who walk in and go, what's new? Or they're excited from like a keynote address. I think Apple announced some new stuff uh, even just last week. And there's little things that change, and people come in droves and in lines. The first time I worked for Apple was in 2014, and this is when there were still the crazy lines that would go down the street. This was in the Chicago suburbs that I was working, and there would be snow falling on people, and they are standing in line beginning at like 2 a.m. And we had to hire security, and people were excited to wait because it was something new. And inevitably, what ends up happening, especially the the longer I worked for Apple, was the less these shiny new things, because I got to interact with all the latest and greatest every day, was that it became very mundane. It became very boring. It wasn't actually something, as I encountered it, that was exciting anymore. And what happens, though, is also those new things become old very quickly. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, in, in this first chapter that we're going to look at, what we're, part of what we're actually going to encounter is this kind of this fad of the new, this excitement for new things, and we're going to see that it's vanity. And as we read here in a moment, you'll see that this vanity is actually, in, you, or depending on your translation, it might even say vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness. And we're going to see this again and again, really just about all of life. And so I want to encourage you at the start It's not going to be depressing because there's good news for us here, church. And as Wade mentioned in his call to worship, in case you um, arrived late or tuned in online uh, a little bit after, is that Ecclesiastes is a wisdom literature book. So in the Old Testament, and we have James in the New Testament that would fit wisdom literature, these are books that are actually instructing people a skill in the art of godly living. Or another definition that I'm borrowing from an old professor of mine is that wisdom literature is a theology of the redeemed living in a world under God's rule. So one of the things we're going to do as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is we're going to see that things are broken. That sin's inbreaking into the world has left it where things are not good as they were created to be good. But there's good news in this. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes now. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read to verse 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. 
All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has, ha- what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. It was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Our Father, Lord, uh, this is the day that you have given us, a a day of rain for a thirsty ground, um, a day in which um, things are not what we expected, perhaps, as we woke up, um, a day in which, um, Lord, um, your people get to gather and get to hear each other sing uh, in one space, to, to actually hear their neighbor confessing the creeds of the church. Lord, what a joy that is that you've given to us. What a joy it is that you call us into worship, that you call us to yourself, that you pursue us with a relationship, that you provide for us atonement. Lord, we pray now as we look at your word, as it's holy and infallible, as we look at it, Lord, and we see the brokenness, the effects of our sin in this world, Lord, we pray that we would see your great deliverance that you have given us in your son and the redemption of all things. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have two brief points for us this morning in Ecclesiastes. We're going to be focusing on one big question, and I'm going to give you guys two answers as we look at God's word in Ecclesiastes. The big question we're going to look at is actually kind of how I think we could summarize the big question for the whole book of Ecclesiastes is how do we live in a broken world where things are not the way they're supposed to be? And this is something that I think for many of us, we don't need convincing of that things are broken. This is something we encounter. This is something we see in the very beginning of all things. If you think back to me with me to the beginning of Genesis, we have a place where all things are very good, where the relational connection even is good and there's nothing wrong. And then we see shame and blame and sin all at once and things that were intended to be good. There's now twisting and distorting. And so if you think about the book of Genesis where we see sin enter, the book of Genesis, there's, there's this interesting thing as I've studied the book of Ecclesiastes, is that there's this similarity between Genesis and Ecclesiastes that exists. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, one is, one is poetry that is depressing, it's Edgar Allan Poe, and one is telling a creation account. How are these alike? So he, here's what's happening, here's what the preacher is doing in Ecclesiastes, here's what God's doing in his word. Genesis tells the story of how humans, in the very beginning, as image bearers of God, are in a state of life, paradise, and innocence. They're naked and unashamed. And in Ecclesiastes, what we actually see is a reflection about Genesis chapter 3. We actually see the the preacher go through this, of going through the guilt and the toil, the sin, the brokenness, the things are not the way they're supposed to be, as we see Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 expelled from the garden. And so Ecclesiastes... This wisdom literature, this skill in the art of God, how do we live in a broken world? Ecclesiastes is going through and is reflecting on this. How do we follow God in a broken world? And so the preacher is Solomon, as we see even in the first verse there. And this preacher, we know that with the youth group kids, we've actually been studying Ecclesiastes. And because there's a lot of references to the kings, I've given them this simple breakdown. David was a king after God's own heart. So I describe David as a king with a whole heart. 
Saul, who came before him, was a head taller than everybody else. He looked impressive. He looked like the kings of the other nations. He was a king with no heart. He ultimately wanted his own glory, is what we see again and again from Saul. David has that whole heart. And Solomon, the king that comes after David, I describe him to the youth group kids as a, as a king with a half a heart. Because for part of his life, Solomon goes and does whatever he wants. You can actually read in Ecclesiastes 2, the following chapter, of how he pursued every self-indulgence you could possibly want. Lavish gardens planted in a desert place. More books than he could possibly find. And so we, we see this, is that this is someone who's saying he's experienced a lot of this world. And at the end of the day, he goes again and again, vanity, vanity, vanity. That no matter what he did, no matter what experiences he filled his life with, no matter how many new things, he found it to be broken and empty. And so in Ecclesiastes, we have this reflection of these things that are broken. And so my my first point for you guys answering that big question I set up of how do we live in a broken world is that we actually need to see that things are broken. Look back with me at verses 2 through 4. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And we see then he actually goes into a reflection to basically prove this. He gives an illustration that, hey, the the wind always comes back around. The sun comes back around. No matter what you do, eventually the streams will go back to the ocean and the ocean is not going to be filled. So that in all of these things, everything that he does, it doesn't actually produce any change. It's not changing the brokenness in this world. And here's where we, if you read all of Ecclesiastes and Genesis together, what you actually see is this, this comparison because you have the brokenness that he's lamenting that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that there's sin and that things are twisted. And no matter how many books he reads, he's known as one of the wisest men. He's known as one of the richest kings. That no matter what, all of that ended up feeling just empty, meaningless, broken and so what we actually see in genesis is that that's not the way things were meant to be there was meant to be innocence there was meant to be unbroken relationship between adam and eve and between their god he was going to walk with them in the garden and that sin changes everything and now everything is not the way it's supposed to be so this is where church here's a piece that seems depressing it might seem like an edgar Allan poe poem vanity 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 Broken, 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 meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And the story that scripture tells is a story that is not left in that brokenness and in that meaninglessness. What we actually see is a story of redemption, where even as Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they're given the promise that one day, Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be someone to crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be deliverance. And so this is where Ecclesiastes enters in this tension because how do we live then in a broken world where things are not the way they're meant to be, where they're vain, where they're meaningless, where they're broken. And this is something that scripture makes very clear is that we actually cannot fix it on our own. That only actually God entering into the story, the story that he tells from Genesis to Revelation can actually address that brokenness. No matter how many books Solomon read, it actually, one of the things that I just went over recently with the youth group kids is that he ends up going, I see more brokenness. I grew in knowledge. Things are more broken. I I thought having nice gardens would make me happy. They don't make me happy. 
And so again and again, we see this. And I think an important thing as we're talking about the brokenness, if you've ever had a, a traumatic experience in your life, and I'm sure we've all had our different experiences of that, one of the things we most want in that moment is not a friend to go, everything's going to be okay and pat you on the back. You want your friend to go, that's awful. That's horrible. I cannot believe that happened to you. You actually want them to see and name the brokenness. To name wicked things wicked. To name sin, sin. And this is something that scripture does. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 8.28, I'm just going to read it very briefly. So you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Romans 8.28, I'll read it for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what I really want to highlight for you there is it's not calling sin good. Sin is never called good. Even as we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is that our God, who's the author of all things. Throughout Ecclesiastes, we see again and again this constant refrain of God is our creator and our sustainer. God never calls something wicked good. He never calls sin good. And so all things working together for the good of those who love him does not cause something horrible or traumatic that happens or someone sinning against you. It is never called good. And so that's actually as we're answering this big question this morning of how do we live in a broken world, we actually need to be able to name the brokenness. We need to be able to say that's sin, that's a broken relationship. These are effects of living in a fallen world. Something really helpful with that, when I've said this phrase a couple times this morning, is that in a broken world, things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's because or in our larger catechism, even as a church, it uses this phrase that in, in, in the fallen world, there's sin and misery. And sin is the things we do against a holy God by which we deserve his wrath. Apart from the atonement and righteousness of Jesus. And misery is actually something that we see again and again. Earthquakes is misery. It's not the way it's supposed to be in a perfect garden where God walks with his people. And so misery in the world is, is actually a, it's a good and helpful category for naming the brokenness. Because sometimes it's not actually sin, but the effect of living in a sinful world by which the very ground is cursed in Genesis 3. And so that's the first thing. How do we live in a broken world? We live in a broken world by being able to name the condition that we live in. Another example from my time working for Apple, I mainly did phone repairs again and again. I got to be a part of Battery Gate during seminary. Perhaps you remember a couple years ago in the news where hundreds and hundreds of batteries were racing in the back room with each other, timing each other, because we're just having to throw in battery after battery. But one of the things to actually check a phone in to do a battery replacement, it always frustrated customers because it was never as simple as like walking in, here's my phone wait five, ten minutes, get a new battery. We're talking hours, especially the top of what was called battery gate with the reduced prices. But one of the things we had to do was actually get them to a technician who needed to do a workup of what is the condition of the device. Because Apple doesn't want to pay for more than they have to. They're admitting fault with one thing. I had to turn away hundreds of customers because it was like, hey, you know, to, to lift up the screen, it's already cracked. We're going to break it more in order to fix the battery. You have to pay also for a screen. So that $29 battery, you're now talking an extra $170 for your screen. And so naming the condition that something is broken actually helps us. This is where I'm saying Ecclesiastes, it's God's word. It's given for our good. 
Because it actually helps us name the brokenness. And that's part of what we see in Ecclesiastes here, is that we might name the brokenness. What is the condition? The condition is vanity of vanities, is meaninglessness, is brokenness, is that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Not only because of our sin, but also because of the misery of living in a fallen world. And let's go to the second point. This is the second answer I have for you guys this morning on how do we live in a broken world. And it's that we actually need to see our weariness. So if you look back with me at verses 7 and 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And this is something that I think we all can relate to. So just going off that, the last part of that verse to start with, um, I do not enjoy re-watching movies. Those of you that know me well might know that about me. I enjoy watching new movies. Because it's, there's something just boring about it to me. Movies I even love, like the extended edition Lord of the Rings, I would claim is my all-time favorite. At the same time, I'll, I'll watch it like once every five years. It's like a 13-hour commitment. I love it. I don't want to actually sit down for 13 hours. I start kind of fast-forwarding in my head of kind of like, oh, yeah, here's where this goes, here's where this goes. And then I find myself like, okay, I'm just going to skip the rest of this one. I'll start the second one. And it's because we're so used to things being new. Not only that, but my eyes are not satisfied. My ears are not satisfied with something that I claim to even enjoy. Something I would even say is my favorite movie. And it's what we even see with, the whole, with, with all of us, I'm sure, especially during the pandemic, with Netflix. How many times have you opened Netflix, maybe with your significant other, and begun to scroll through it to then not pick to watch anything or to just pick to rewatch something that you already know you like, like rewatching a TV show? We've all done it. We've all done it again and again. I can't tell you how many times I've seen through all of the seasons of The Office. It would probably be embarrassing if I actually had a time count of that. I don't like rewatching movies, TV shows. I'll rewatch all day. <laughs> and so with, it, with nothing being new, we have this weariness. You have this weariness when you're scrolling through Netflix, looking for something to satisfy your eye, looking for something to satisfy your ear. And it leaves us exhausted. And what we actually see, I mentioned before that James is, is wisdom literature in the New Testament. That's the, the way in which he writes. And we actually see that your, your life is but a mist, that there's this weariness actually of all things of living in the world. That's what Ecclesiastes is talking about here. This is also vanity or an illustration used again and again throughout Ecclesiastes. It's like striving against the wind. And another way you can picture striving against the wind is like trying to catch Niagara Falls in a sippy cup. Like it's just not going to work. You're going to look foolish to even try to do it. You're going to catch the front of the wind. Good good luck. I, I don't even know where you start with that. I, I'd assume being pretty fast will be helpful. And so this refrain of how can we actually live in a broken world, we need to be able to, first, we need to be able to actually call something that's broken, broken. We need to be able to call sin, sin. We need to be able to address that there is misery in this world. We also need to be able to address that there is weariness, that we cannot actually fix all of the broken things. And that we cannot be satisfied. Because there is brokenness in this world, we cannot be satisfied by it. And what we actually see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is there's this reoccurring phrase, but rejoice. Better is a living dog than a dead lion. It's one of my favorite illustrations from the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And this isn't like a domesticated dog that you would have in your house, like my little dog Diggory that I love. This is a scavenging animal. This is an animal that you don't love. And so the illustration is not think about an animal that you love and an animal that you see at the zoo, but rather actually think about a dog that's only good for scavenging and something that's wildly powerful. Something that could actually attack and kill you and something that like could bite your arm, but the dog's probably not going to kill you. It's going to live by wherever dump and refuge is near your city. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, we see that there is still this joy, and often it's in the phrase, eat and drink and be merry. Eat and rejoice, remember the wife of your youth. These are the the refrains that we have throughout the book. And it's this constant thing of even though there's this weariness, how to actually live in a world that's broken is that we can actually not only call the bad things good, we don't need to be weary. We are not the fixers of these things. Rather, God is the fixer. He is our creator and sustainer is what Ecclesiastes makes very clear. I'm kind of going through summarizing the whole book so that we're not just in the vanity of vanities. I'm giving you guys where it goes since this is a a one-off sermon. Hopefully I encourage you guys to read it um, on your own. This weariness, this constant going about of things, what we actually see is in addressing that, that brokenness that we can actually find good things that God has given. One of the theological terms that will, will be used in conversations like this is that God gives common grace. And we actually have a beautiful example of common grace just out the window with rain. Because rain falls on both the just and the unjust. And this God who provides and sustains his creation does it again and again. So even though there's brokenness in this world, or even if you could go to my backyard and see all the thorns and thistles that I keep having to pull out of my dog's paw again and again, you could literally see the effect of Genesis 3 and the curse that there's thorns and thistles in the yard I try to care for. That there is still beauty even in a fallen world. It is marred, the beauty that this world was meant to have that it was called very good at the beginning of creation. It's marked, but it's not destroyed. I'm actually stealing that phrase, our, our denomination. We have a book of church order. Um, I love reading it. Most people say it'll just put you to sleep. Um, so enjoy it if you'd like to. Um, but in the book of church order, that's actually when we talk about that line of the, the holy Catholic church that Wade talked about from the Apostles' Creed before. The, the marred but not destroyed is actually how it addresses the question of, like, why are there so many denominations? Like, if the church is truly meant to be one, and it's the Holy Catholic Church, why are there so many brother and sister churches that just don't get along with each other? It's marred but not destroyed. The unity that we actually have under the, 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 uh, under the lordship of Jesus and the gospel, that relationship that we have with one another, means we can lock arms with brothers and sisters who believe and preach the gospel, who believe that Jesus is the only one who could save us. It's by his righteousness alone. And so it's marred but not destroyed, that unity that the church has. And the same thing with the good things that God made in his world. They're marred, but they're not actually destroyed. And so we see those, we encounter those. We encounter those in beautiful things, things that are intended for our good. Rain's an example, marriage is an example. So throughout Ecclesiastes, we see this again and again with the example of eating and drinking. Because no matter what, you still need to eat and drink to live, even in a fallen world. And so, where Ecclesiastes goes, because I don't want to leave you guys hanging, I actually couldn't leave the youth group kids hanging either as we read through the book. If you turn there in your Bible, turn to the very last chapter of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is where 
if we could say there is one verse that could summarize the book of Ecclesiastes, here it is. It begins, all things are vanity. And basically, the preacher keeps building on it throughout the whole book of look and see the sin and misery of this world. But constantly giving us a reminder that there is a creator and sustainer that loves us. This is where Ecclesiastes ends. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The brokenness that we can see and name in this world, there is a God who is going to judge it. The end of the matter, the whole duty of man, the whole duty of image bearers, is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is what we're seeing actually again and again throughout the book of Deuteronomy. If you, as we've gone through it the last couple months, we keep seeing the phrase again and again, fear God and obey his commands. The whole Deuteronomic sermon as it goes through, that's the constant drumbeat. That's the rhythm in the background of every point that Moses has given on behalf of, or given from God to give to his people as about to enter the promised land, is fear God and obey his commandments. And this is something again and again that God actually makes gracious provision and provides for his people. In their sin, he gives them the bronze serpent that they're going to be able to raise up and look to for salvation. When they they sinned previously in the wilderness. And he continues in his covenant of grace to actually make atonement again and again. And to provide ways at which he might show his mercy upon whom he might show mercy. And we see him even give judgment again and again. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3, we actually see a very harsh judgment from God on two kingdoms because of the types of sacrifices that they were doing where the Israelites wiped them out in their entirety. And so the end of the, the, end of the thing, all things have been heard. There is a God who is going to judge the things that are broken. This actually, every time I, I read this end of Ecclesiastes, it reminds me of one of my favorite catechism questions from our church's catechism, which is the first question of the shorter catechism, of what is the chief end of man? And perhaps you know the, the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. This is the whole duty of man. This is how the, the Westminster Divine sought to summarize what Scripture says from beginning to end on what we are to do, is to glorify and enjoy God. And this is something that we cannot do on our own with this sin and misery. This is rather something that God does just as he has his covenants of grace from the very beginning and continues to provide mercy for his people and also judgment of sin, of the fact that things are broken, is that again and again, his provision is there. He is our creator and our sustainer. A guy named Al Walters in the 60s wrote this pithy little phrase that I love, that God doesn't make junk and he doesn't junk what he made. That's the story of redemption. That God didn't make junk in the very beginning, and he doesn't junk. He doesn't throw out the things that he made. I do need to clarify with that. He goes on to talk about God's judgment, just as scripture does. Because he doesn't junk it, but there is also judgment. Which is something Ecclesiastes makes very clear, that there's all of this brokenness. And it's helpful when we can name the brokenness and the misery that we experience as we live in a fallen world. And it's also helpful that we might not be weary of this broken world. 
because God continues to be our creator and sustainer. If you look at chapter two of Ecclesiastes, what you'll actually see, you'll see basically three things of places that Solomon looked for happiness. He looked for it in his self-indulgence by just doing whatever he wanted. He then looked for it in his own wisdom, growing in knowledge, and then he actually looks for it in his work. Ecclesiastes makes it very clear that we're good at trying to look for our own sustaining and our own happiness everywhere but in God's provision. That we'll look for it everywhere else. And this is where, as I, I even shared at the beginning of this whole thing of being new. We love the new thing. We love the upgrade because there's nothing broken about it. And whether we know it or not, we actually encounter brokenness, not only from sin, but brokenness in relationships, brokenness in literally the fact that my backyard is covered in thorns right now that I keep having to take from my dog's paw. We encounter that sin and that misery again and again, and we want new things to actually be able to fill that spot. And Ecclesiastes continues to highlight for us, no, 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 the God that made all of these things, he doesn't junk what he made. Rather, he sustains by his covenant of grace again and again. He sustains his people. He provides for his people. And where we actually see this most prominently, of course, you know, is in Jesus Christ, where we actually have something or someone who is broken that we might be made new. This is the king that we worship, is a king who is broken for our redemption, that by his wounds we might actually be healed. So how do we live, church, in a world that is fallen and broken, and when we encounter vanity of vanities? We can only live in a broken world by the grace of the God who made it and the God who continues to sustain it. And this is what you'd see if you kept reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, is that things are broken, and Scripture is very real to call broken things broken and sinful things sin. God does not call sin good ever. And it's a helpful thing to actually be able to, with brothers and sisters in a discipleship group or community group, it's a helpful and good thing to even be able to call things that are broken, broken. To call things that are sinful, sinful. Not, it's all going to be all right. But that is awful that that happened to you. I'll close in prayer. Our Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for the world that you made. Lord, that you are a God who desires to have relationship with us in his abundant mercy, who makes covenants of grace with his church, with his people, providing a way, providing an atonement that ultimately comes through his son. Lord, as we uh, leave this place today, may we be encouraged from your world, from your word, that we might actually even call the things that are broken, broken. In Jesus' name, amen.